0: Today I'm going to base my thoughts on Hebrews chapter 10. The people being written to were, of course, Hebrews, probably living in Jerusalem, Jews that had believed and had decided to confess that Jesus was the Son of God. They decided perhaps to come out to their families, friends and communities. The synagogue was the local school, the local meeting place for your family and friends, The place where you escaped to read the scriptures, where you were among friends in the the sanctuary of like-minded people. The Jewish religious and business authorities ran your society and were in control of your reputation. And to stand against them was to risk condemnation and rejection. To be thrust out of Jewish society, no longer any ordinary respect was shown you. No handshakes from those you once considered friends. No conversation. Everything you relied on was stripped away suddenly and with it the chance of your livelihood, of selling your crops, trading with your neighbours. So this affected not just you, but your children and your partner, your whole family in a very traditional and closely knit community. And that's not even to begin to mention the persecution, the muted aggression, the disrespect, the hostility just under the surface, And this was just from the Jews, the people you'd grown up with and considered your friends. We haven't spoken about the Romans yet and how they treated you. So it's quite understandable then that some of them chose not to come out and admit that they believed in Jesus as the Son of God. It's a little hard to imagine what they had to go through, isn't it? The dust of history settles, it buries everything. All the emotions and the people and the stones upon which they walked and the towns and even the memory of the towns have all gone. But I think we can get a flavour of what it must have been like for these people and why many would not have been able to confess Jesus despite their belief. We read in John... They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, a time is coming when anyone who kills you will think he's offering a service to God. They will do such things because they haven't known me or the Father. After all, in the very town where Jesus grew up, they tried to kill him. They brought him to the edge of the cliff, hadn't they, and tried to throw him off. No one had personally had any bad experiences with Jesus, but somehow gossip was enough and reputation was enough to treat him in this way. Confessing Jesus as the Son of God meant suffering. So much suffering that Hebrews contains a warning at the end of it not to abandon the truth. So we're going to look at what made these Jews choose this life and what was so compelling that they risked everything and what we can learn from them. So for a few minutes I'd like us to imagine ourselves in the place of an average young husband or wife during the end of Jesus' life. A typical Jew just going about their daily business, try to look through their eyes, as it were, trying to find some inspiration. Perhaps earlier, one of them would have learned of Jesus' whereabouts and taken supplies and set off on foot to go and see him, to hear his unique message, to be touched or healed by him, or just to ask a question of him. They could have seen many thousands of others there, many appallingly disfigured, very weak and ill, shuffling towards a small group on the hillside. But in common with many other listeners, they wouldn't have understood what was about to happen to Jesus or had, he had any mental defence against it. If they'd not already believed and were not already witnessing for Jesus while it was called cool today, their time was up. The slow metallic clink of hammer on nail was ringing out over the hillside. There were many who had until that point not dared to confess his name Instead, they had felt that the security of staying within their culture was worth more than the insecurity of a public confession with possible persecution. Not everyone is brave enough to publicly witness their beliefs. Sometimes the seed has to die before it grows. So as Jesus was hoisted up naked into position, in full view of a hostile and scornful crowd, these understandably scared believers fled down through the twisting and turning alleyways to the safety of their courtyard and into the back rooms of their homes, wondering if they were next. Did anyone make the connection between you and Jesus? Did anyone realise that you were a disciple, a believer? Perhaps the man two doors down from where you lived had noticed you in the crowd as you stood smiling as Jesus spoke. Maybe you were next. And in the next three days, it must have felt like an eternity. You felt a desperate sense of shame for not standing up for him. And either alone or in trusted twos and threes, you would have wrangled with your conscience about what you could have done anyway against the authorities. And yet you fled out of fear without enough faith to even just stand there watching on. Perhaps you had to listen to jibes from your neighbours and your family members who knew all along he was a liar. Those suffocating three days were nearly through, and horrifyingly, you feel yourself nearly coming to terms with Jesus' death. Everything was sort of fading away, and your part in doing nothing seemed probably the right thing to do. Why was there a need to suffer by owning up to your faith in him? Can't you just believe in private? So after a few days, you decide that you need food, and you venture out to the market, and you're determined to be on your guard and to play it cool. And yet your heart is heavy. Playing it cool just makes you feel deeply depressed. You're just thinking again of yourself. This faithlessness clouding your soul, it's just what Jesus had been the opposite of. He was fearless and represented powerful righteousness in the face of persecution. He was a healer, a teacher, a champion of truth and love. And that it had all come to nothing. And that those scheming, self-loving religious people and the brutal Romans were... Sickeningly jubilant around you must have rubbed it in. It's while you're walking cautiously with that fake smile, that polite smile, that you become aware that the noise of the market is different this time. Instead of haggling, you hear a low buzzing sound and people are huddled together, murmuring as you press in to hear what they've got to say. You hear the words, This Jesus who they crucified is alive. I've seen him myself. You can't accept what you're hearing and you jostle for positions to hear new questions and new answers. They probably didn't crucify him properly. Right, when did, When was the last time they got that wrong? But no one comes back from the dead? Well, Lazarus did. And Jairus' daughter? I don't believe any of it. Do you also not believe the story of Elisha and the Shunammite women? But why this man? What's so special about him? Who raised him? And then... It's that that moment where you turn around and force your way into the sunlight and your eyes fill with tears. It's true. And I am a faithless failure. Why can't I ever do what's right when it's right to do it? And you make your way away from everyone to be by yourself. And you stumble down a narrow path and through a gate into a grove of trees. And looking around as you find nobody, you break down. And you pray a prayer of intense spiritual pain, of inner turmoil and agony, a prayer of travail of spirit. I'm sorry for not being the person that I know I should be. I don't know what's wrong with me, but please help me to love you. Please heal me the way you heal all those others. Fill me with courage and keep me on the right path and take away my doubt. What use am I if you don't help me change? I'm so sorry. Please help me. Please forgive me. I don't know if you've ever prayed that prayer, but I have many times. The confession of our weakness let out in a tearful prayer is absolutely the right response when we recognise our failings, the coldness of our hearts towards God, our ineffectiveness and our stained lives. But it is only the first step towards true worship. I want to take a diversion here and and talk a little bit about the stars of the sky because it's a fascinating fact that stars as they grow old have essentially two fates awaiting them. They can either, as they grow old, just dissipate and they end in a sort of flaky, spread-out, flappy heat death as they grow cooler. Or they can do what supernovae do, which is that they experience this spread-outness as the fires inside them go out. But then gravity begins to pull them back. And as the outer parts of the star collapses in, the, the fire heats up again, as it were. The nuclear, uh, the nuclear process starts up. And it's at that point that they explode with the brightness of a million suns, more than that sometimes. And they're finding brighter and brighter supernova all the time. And I think that's a fitting metaphor for the way these Jewish people and us today here have to recognise the ebb and flow of our faith. We do fail and we do retreat off to be by ourselves when we recognise that failure and we've realised that we have become cool and our, our faith, the light of our faith has gone out. But it's in that humility that we are able to come back. It's in the recognition of what Jesus has truly done for us that we're able to reignite that fire and it's that reignition that is able to produce the, the massive difference in our faith. We couldn't have been like that if we'd been consistent. In some way we need to recognise that it's not to do with us but it's to do with Christ. If we give up on the idea that we can shine in our own lives, that it's our light and it's up to us, we can move on from understanding that we're failures. Instead, as we pray that prayer of sorrow, we must recognise that the cure for our failure doesn't lie within ourselves. The beginning of that cure isn't getting up earlier or being more disciplined or doing more in, in the truth. We must let go of this impure form of control and of security that we want to keep hold of. This is what Jesus calls our life, our control. The human mind thinks something like this. I do something and it felt uncomfortable, and it was painful, and I failed, so I won't do it again. Or i changed what I do so it doesn't hurt and isn't painful. It's that old joke of, doctor, doctor, it really hurts when I put my arm in this position. Well, don't do it then. The Jewish believer that we've been following in our story was unable to commit to confessing Jesus publicly, and therefore he couldn't live this life truly. Because of the fear or pain of discomfort, he wanted something better for himself, than God was going to let him have. He was holding on to impure security, which he called life. He was in fact losing his life. It's then that this Jewish man was reminded of the eternal reality and love that Jesus had given him life. He had another chance to set his life in order, to lay hold of a pure form of being out of control, a pure form of insecurity. That is, a life paid for by Christ and controlled by God. If we want our lives in Christ to matter, what we do after we get down on our knees and repent is crucial. But unfortunately, there is yet another stumbling block in our way. Sometimes we can't stop berating ourselves. We're almost addicted to repentance. We can't or won't let go of our own guilt. We can't forgive ourselves, can we? Somehow, some of our sins remain there. there because we always sin and guilt follows sin, somehow it feels okay to hang on to that guilt. It goes something like this. As long as I'm feeling guilty, then I'm not becoming overconfident or proud. And that's a good thing. No one likes pride or overconfidence but it would be nice not to be sinning. Surely it's best not to have sinned at all. I'm so awful because I have sinned. And the guilt goes round and round like that in a circle. Some people have this sense of guilt that hangs over them, lingering on and on. Even though they've repented, it sticks with them. And the birds snatch away the seeds and they never grow any fruit, or they feel constantly in a state of grief at their own lack of faith. That eats away at their life and robs them of their joy and happiness in the truth. It's similar with tradition. You know, we do it like that, or that what's what's been decided, or the meeting voted to do this, or it's always been done such and such. These are distractions from the life that we could be leading in Christ. We are, as it were, procrastinating in our spiritual lives when we don't move on, when we won't forgive ourselves, when we won't forgive others for that matter. They're just obstacles that we need to remove. The problem is, once we remove those obstacles and admit that we've been forgiven, it brings us to the point where we have to do something, where we have to live that spiritual life in all its fullness. There's nothing in the way anymore. Holding on to impure security in the control of our lives, all the former things, all the ways of life we haven't quite let go of, or, or guilt. It's all the same. It kills our joy and our growth and it frustrates the purpose of God in us. But it's better the devil we know than perhaps an uncertain future in the hands of God. So how do we let go of the past when it isn't suitable to hold on to it? Well, what we need is joy. Joy is the inner recognition of the triumph that life has had over death. In the face of difficult experiences. It's what makes life bearable. Joy is knowing that love always wins, no matter how painful. The knowledge of the joy Jesus was, was going to experience with the Father was what got him through his dark times. It's actually easy to have joy from the scriptures. You just lift your head up. That's all it takes. Lift your head up and focus on your redemption. Set your goals and your eyes on higher things. We already have obtained the victory. The love of God in Christ has already set us free from ourselves. There is no law that's holding us back. We are already completely free in Christ Jesus. There is no sacrifice or no amount of moping or no amount of morbid focusing on our faults that can bring us closer to God. It doesn't matter which way the label on the tablecloth goes on the memorial table or whether it's correctly ironed. It doesn't really matter what version of the Bible is read on Sunday as opposed to what we read on Monday. It doesn't matter if we got the job. It doesn't matter if we can't let something go. Love has already triumphed. We read earlier If the sacrifice had worked, then they would have been cleansed once for all and would have no longer felt guilty for their sins. But it didn't, did it? The sacrifices had to be repeated. It's our sacrifice, Christ's sacrifice, that's been done once for all, and therefore we don't have to feel guilty for our sins if we remain in Christ. To get close to God, we have to let go of everything that we fear to lose. Most of all, we have to let go of this control and security that we, that we hang on to, that only sees problems ahead and that finds truly embracing our spiritual lives, threatening to the things we don't want to let go of. This is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and write them on their minds. Their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. And that includes a sort of reproach of ourselves and a berating of ourselves and a, and a failure to forgive ourselves. The Jews were absolutely steeped in tradition and thousands of onerous and tiresome rules. They were slaves to various laws of sin and death, all while being reminded of their failures under the law. Rivers of blood flowed as day by day one Bulls and goats were sacrificed in their rows and none of it made any permanent difference the hidden message of Hebrews 10 is to me that if the Jewish believers could embrace this new way of life based on an amazing sense of joy and freedom through Christ, so can we. If a Jewish believer could let go of that kind of impure self-reliance and, and of doing things, of being right, uh, then so can we. The sin and guilt and sacrifice cycle, if they could let go of that, so can we. Our focus should be on thanks be to God who has given us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, we sin. Yes, we need to repent. But it's a fact of being alive that God has already taken into account. Our focus should be on Christ because it's being in Christ and remaining in Him that guarantees that we will be found faultless. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. For he who promised is faithful, and let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. So we know that if we stay in Christ, we will be found faultless and flawless. So what could be more sad than seeing a brother or sister struggling with issues of tradition or persistent guilt or any other issue that they have? The togetherness and fellowship that we share today here and wherever we meet is so that we can show towards each other a little of that love that God is reaching out in the pages of Scripture to give us. If he is going to find us faultless, then whenever we look around and spot a brother or sister struggling or making a mistake, it's our job to help them, but ultimately to find them faultless through forgiveness. It's our privilege to offer help. In this room now, we see a selection of those who will be in the kingdom as our fellow workers. And so we come to this warning, which I want to deal with because I want to take the heat out of it. I've read this for many years with a certain sense of foreboding. It's perhaps the most serious warning in all scripture. We deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth. No sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who was treated as an unholy thing, the blood of the covenant that sanctified them, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace?' For we know him who said, it is mine to avenge, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. This is a very hard passage to read because we all know that we have fallen, fallen short of the glory of God and sometimes even sin deliberately. But I wanted to raise this passage because today is about love casting out fear this morning is about the victory that has been given us if we remain in Christ. Parents fear that if they educate their children in the truth, their children will be guilty and will be come under the judgment of these verses. And young ones worry about being sinners and don't like the idea of being a baptised sinner because the punishment looks worse than being a non-Christian sinner. These, reverses, these verses refer to a deep knowledge of the truth. Epignosis, the word is, not just head knowledge, but having approached the truth and truly understood it and know what the benefit is and full in the face of that to walk back deliberately and unrepentantly. If you've heard the gospel, you, can, you cannot be an apostate necessarily. It refers to those who know the truth. It's not just merely hearing a snifter of it. You have to really have lived it. In chapter 6, verse 4, he describes an apostate as someone who was enlightened or illuminated, who had tasted the kingdom and everything about God's plan and purpose, and then rejected it. We don't know, I suppose, of each other, whether it refers to anyone that we know, and we can only sort of attempt to judge ourselves, but both those judgments are outlawed in Scripture. It's for God to judge. But we know the criteria that he's laying out here, and we can ask ourselves, does it apply to us or anyone we know? And I hope that we will decide no. Even among the sinners, even though we know we sin. I left the truth, as it were, for a while. Uh, probably ten years ago. Five, ten years ago. Because I found living the truth very difficult. I always believed, but I found myself slipping away. I lived abroad. I didn't break bread. And I, I thought about God every day, but I couldn't come and be with others. I didn't want to have to talk to them about my private fight, I suppose, my private struggle. Was I an apostate then? I don't think so, because what we're talking about in these verses is somebody who rejects the truth, not somebody who struggles with it, not somebody who sins deliberately, but then changes their mind and repents. This is a concerted lifestyle that has denied the validity of everything Christ has given us. Doing what's right when it's right to do it is often not within our ability. We need to have experience, sometimes of this heat death that we have, to realise what we tr- how we truly should live. We need the internal rollercoaster of emotions. We need to wrestle our consciences. We need to understand that we're failures. We need to understand that it's Christ that gives us the victory. Those who are led by the Spirit of of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive doesn't make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children, and if we're his children, then we're his heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Brothers and sisters, God has made it very easy and very simple for us. He's given us the truth. He's provided us the victory. He works with us to become more like him, he requires and requests that we let go of the troubles and difficulties and the control and the security, supposed security, in our lives. He asks us that we face persecution. But these are all things we know he asks us to do. We're not left to scrabble around for what he's asked us to do. He's asked us to face anything that he puts in our way, in faith, to embrace pure insecurity, which is in fact absolute certainty with god he says to us here is the knowledge of the truth and here is the gift of my son and the promise of knowing us with eternal youth if you remain in him will you surrender to that and the only answer we have which is why it's an easy question is yes the spirit helps us in our weakness we don't know what we ought to pray for And those he predestined he called, and those he called he also justified those he justified he also glorified past tense that those hammer blows on the nails of of during christ's crucifixion i I like to think of those blows as like drum beats that have lasted throughout the centuries every week, come what may we have the drumbeat on the seventh day of creation. And we're here today to experience in, that, in this drumbeat of his crucifixion and resurrection everything that we've been given. And the challenge is, are we willing to surrender? Come what, whatever the circumstances may be, whatever we may have to experience in life, are we willing to fully surrender?